0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Sunday, December 22nd, 2019. On this day in 1984, Bernard Goetz shot and wounded four young black men in a subway car in New York City. The incident launched a national debate about race, crime, and vigilantism. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the 1984 New York City subway shooting. Let's go back to the early afternoon of December 22nd as the 2 train passed through Manhattan. Bernard Goetz, a 37-year-old man wearing aviator glasses, stepped into the subway car at the 14th Street station. He kept his head down and shuffled to a seat across from the door. Goetz glanced nervously around. He counted at least 20 other people in the car. Three years ago, he'd been mugged at the Canal Street subway station. Ever since, he felt anxious traveling alone. Only the weight of the revolver in his pocket comforted him. It was a guarantee that he'd never be a victim again. As Getz settled into his seat, a young black man across from him, Troy Canty, looked up and asked, How are you doing? Getz grimaced and replied simply, Fine. He didn't like to speak to people he didn't know. Then Getz saw Canty look to three other youths in the car, probably his friends. They might have gestured to each other, which Getz, already on edge, suspected was some kind of covert signal. Getz's mind spun. He immediately formed a plan of action. He slowly moved his hand toward his jacket, toward the revolver. Meanwhile, two of the young men, Troy Canty and Barry Allen, allegedly moved to his left side, separating Getz from the passengers seated on the other end of the car. It's possible that the other two boys, Daryl Cabey and James Ramser, then moved to his right side, but accounts are unclear. Canty then leaned closer to Getz and said, give me five dollars. Without hesitation, Getz stood up, pulled out his 38 caliber, and fired four shots as fast as he could. It's difficult to say exactly in what order the young men were struck. According to the New York Court of Appeals, in the case of People V. Getz, three of Getz's first four shots struck the young men. Canty was hit first in the chest. The second hit Allen in the back. The third penetrated Ramzer's arm and went into his left side. The fourth, aimed at Darrell Kaby, missed and bounced off the wall of the subway car. After the fourth shot, Getz looked around. He saw all four men slumped over and turned his gaze toward Kaby, who was now sitting on a bench. Getz raised the revolver again and shot Kaby from nearly point-blank range. The bullet instantly severed his spinal cord. He would never walk again. The rest of the passengers ran out of the car. Two women who had been sitting closest to the violence were knocked down in the commotion and remained on the ground, terrified. Getz asked them if they were all right and was then approached by the train's conductor. The conductor asked him to hand over the revolver, but Getz refused to. In a panic, he jumped off the train and ran down the subway tunnel. When he got to the Chambers Street station platform, he climbed the stairs and raced home. Getz threw open the door to his apartment and hurriedly packed some of his things. Afterward, he rented a car and sped to Vermont. Once there, he pulled over near the woods and took apart his revolver. He scattered the pieces in the woods and burned the jacket he had been wearing that afternoon. Bernard Goetz was officially a fugitive, but as he would soon find out, many people in New York City considered him a hero. Coming up, the aftermath of one of the most controversial crimes in New York's history. Now back to the story. On the afternoon of December 22, 1984, a white man named Bernard Goetz shot four black men aged 18 to 19 on a subway train in New York City. Afterward, Goetz fled the scene to Vermont, where he became a fugitive. Soon, news of the shooting dominated headlines. Many in the media compared the crime to the popular movie Death Wish and called 37-year-old Goetz a vigilante. At the dawn of the crack epidemic, crime rates in New York City were soaring and the subway was known to be particularly dangerous many New Yorkers believed the mystery shooter had rightfully defended himself from a mugging. For a while, it seemed most of the city was on the shooter's side, but opinions started to shift nine days later when Goetz turned himself in to the police. On December 31, 1984, Getz entered a police station and confessed. He was charged with attempted murder and assault, as well as reckless endangerment for potentially putting other subway passengers at risk. Finally, it emerged that Getz's revolver was unregistered, and he was saddled with charges of unlawfully possessing a firearm. Getz waived his right to an attorney and answered the police's questions for two hours after he turned himself in. His description of the incident was at times chilling. At one point, when asked what his intentions were when he drew his gun, Goetz explained, I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to maim those guys. I wanted to make them suffer in every way I could. Goetz claimed the young men had tried to rob him and that after the shooting he had even considered gouging their eyes out with his keys. Apparently, he had refrained from doing so only because he didn't think he had the time. Goetz acknowledged that he didn't believe the youths were armed. At first, he intended only to flash his gun to scare them off but changed his mind when he saw some kind of gleam in one of the young men's eyes. It made him assume that the young men were planning to beat him up after they robbed him. That's when he snapped. Meanwhile, the public debate about Getz's actions continued to rage. The victims of the shooting initially claimed they had only been panhandling. They said they asked Getz for money. They didn't demand it. However, they admitted they were in the subway car in the first place because they were on their way to rob an arcade. Prominent black leaders like Reverend Al Sharpton loudly denounced Getz's actions. He claimed the media coverage around the shooting gave license to vigilantism. Getz stated in his confession that the primary reason he snapped was because of some kind of shiny look in the eyes of one victim. Reverend Sharpton said these kinds of assumptions and paranoia are often directed by white people toward people of color. If these kinds of irrational fears could be used to legally justify deadly force, then people of color were in constant imminent danger. The polarization in public opinion had a direct impact on Goetz's impending trial. As victim Daryl Kaby said in an interview at the time, he believed Getz would not be convicted of attempted murder because of public sentiment. Kaby's interview was prescient. Goetz was tried and was acquitted of everything except for criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree. He was sentenced to one year in prison and served eight months before he was paroled. But the story continued for years following the criminal trial. In 1996, 12 years after the fact, Getz was tried in a civil case by Daryl Cabey, who was paralyzed by the shooting. The jury found in that case that Getz had been reckless and ruled in favor of K. B. Getz was ordered to pay $43 million in damages. Getz filed for bankruptcy. He has since reported that he doesn't believe he has ever made any payments to KB. The 1984 subway shooting is just one example in the larger societal debate that surrounds the intersection of self-defense when fueled by racist assumptions. In 2012, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in a gated community in Florida because another neighbor believed he was carrying a weapon. Many figures in the media pointed out the similarities in the mindsets and motivations between Bernard Goetz and George Zimmerman. When Zimmerman was eventually acquitted in July of 2013, 29 years after the subway shooting, the Black Lives Matter movement emerged as a new voice in this ongoing conversation. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Today in True Crime for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.